when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, New York Magazine's Andrew Sullivan penned an alarming missive to America in which he contended that our presumed-to-be-stable democracy is actually ripe for an authoritarian takeover. Wondering if he had anyone particular in mind? Well, we're going to find out because he's joining us to talk about it. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is currently hearing an appeal from former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, who was convicted on corruption charges back in 2014 on one of the most open and shut cases of cash for favors that we can ever remember. So why does the Supreme Court seem inclined to take his side? We'll talk about the case that could destroy our already meager protections against government corruption with author and House candidate Zephyr Teachout. Finally, we continue our coverage of the Flint-led water crisis by talking to Michigan Representative Dan Kildee, who this week maintained that what's been going on in the beleaguered city should continue to be a paramount concern for all Americans. We'll discuss how Flint figures in future policy and political discussions. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Christine Canetta. We will have all of this and a recap of the 2016 race, but here's what happened first. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly chronicle about the stuff that occurred in the news that's worth talking about. My name is Chase Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press of the Huffington Post, and joining me today to get things started on what is going to be a really great show, uh, we have Arthur Delaney. Hi. And for the first time making an appearance on this side of the studio wall. <laughs> it's weird. Our producer, Christine Canetta. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hello. Um, so we have a really terrific show. I think everyone's got sort of like a passion project in. Um, but uh, we just want to start with like the uh, short recap of the goings-on in the 2016 race. We hook you with our 2016 bullshit and hope you stick around for our tales of corruption and misery. Um, but obviously... Last week we talked about the primaries being over, and now it's no longer some kind of like ephemeral philosophical position. The GOP one is over. Donald Trump is our new king. Our new god king. <laughs> our new many-splendored thing. It's, and it's strange. And now it's the process of uh, who has guts and who's a chicken who will flock to him and say, buck, 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 buck. I love Donald Trump <laughs> in the I, Republican Party. I mean, that's always been like I remember thinking the day the National Review put out their against Trump issue. I remember thinking it was like what twenty five people here who have like signed up to say they'll never support Trump. I bet it's down to like eight by August. I bet there's like significant reversals. They have to support somebody. I mean, they they're be pretty pretty indisposed. I mean, I, we've had Mark Salter who is the famed McCain conciliary. He wrote 
he co-wrote, ghost wrote, whatever you want to say, McCain's best books, uh, and has been with uh, has been with the the old man for forever. He said that he's going to vote for Hillary because obviously thinks Trump is a deranged maniac, which is I think pretty objectively true. But I feel like some of the people who said previciferously that the man was a con man are now saying, well. We have his back, most notably Marco Rubio, who's a broken and beaten down man. And Ted Cruz. And that's what's most frustrating. That The morning of the Indiana primary, Ted Cruz says, I will now tell the truth about my feelings for Donald Trump. <laughs> that was great. Wait, you weren't telling us? Anyway, go on. <laughs> and he says he's, uh, you know, everything he says is a lie. He's and a he's, pathological liar. Yeah, he's amoral. Uh, he's a narcissist. On and on. All totally objectively true statements. Will you support him now that you're dropping out? Oh. Yeah, he said we're poised at the edge of an abyss. Yeah, so basically it's a transition now from never Trump to, well, maybe if it has to be, I guess, Trump. Yeah, yeah it's the etch-a-sketch for the people around the candidate. I mean, we also have to talk about the fact that like so many of these people that have like opposed Trump from the beginning are, in a normal election cycle, uh, people who would be servicing the Republican Party in many different ways. Patrick Ruffini, digital strategist for the Republican Party, uh, would probably be looking to get a job with the presidential campaign, or, or not with the campaign, but working to support the presidential campaign. Uh, Tim uh, Miller, who uh, is has has gone to work for the anti-Trump super PAC, uh, one cycle ago was working for America Rising, a right. top oppo shop for the Republican Party. Does he go back to America Rising now? Does America Rising become a pro-Trump oppo shop? Because if they're all philosophically uh, similar to Tim, it would be kind of untenable. And yet, those guys do have to make a living. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's honestly, it's like a really shitty situation for the Republican Party right now as a whole. Like It's exciting. I, yeah. It's really awkward for them. I don't know what their next step is going to be and whether or not it's going to do them any favors come November. The uncertainty of it is exciting. People really don't know what's going on. But I agree with uh, Andrew Sullivan, who's on the show Today. in this episode, who said the ones who are com- recommitting to hashtag never Trump deserve a pat on the back from everyone else for doing the right thing. And and uh, I pat them. I hereby pat. They have been patted by the So That Happened podcast, which is <laughs> always a big thing. You know, we I, I'm pretty sure we should take credit for getting uh, what's-his-name in Maryland elected. Uh, um, uh, Raskin? Yeah, Jamie yeah. Raskin. <laughs> you know, the bump is real. Um, but, you know, let's talk about the, the Democratic Party. Yeah, now they're the interesting ones, right? Because we all thought that everybody was going to be focused on the GOP convention, and now it's going the DNC is going to be a lot more interesting, right? Well... There Maybe are, people are claiming <laughs> that there'd be. A, see, we keep talking about contested conventions and broker conventions and all that stuff, and like no one can really explain how they'll work. Now we don't have to worry about the yeah. GOP one <laughs> being contested unless the people who who are the arbiters of their of their party rules do something crazy like unbind all the delegates from Jump Street. But uh, there's talk now of of the Sanders campaign actually, you know, contesting the convention. I'm not sure how that will work. Well, let's tell the people what happened. On Tuesday, when Donald Trump clinched, you know, became the the presumptive GOP nominee by winning Indiana, Hillary Clinton, who had been projected to win by polls, did not win. Yep. 
And Ouch. if she had won, it I think we people expected the dropout talk to get louder for Sanders. So that didn't happen. No. And now and, and the situation is confusing with one candidate on one side now and two on the other with no clear path forward for Sanders other than maybe a broker convention. But they didn't explain how that was really going to happen, did they? I don't think there's a way to explain it because there are the brokers on the Democratic side are the superdelegates. So to achieve something that's not currently on the path to being achieved, Sanders would have to convince some 500 people who have already of the superdelegates who have already decided they're going to be backing Hillary Clinton to back him. To do that, his argument is that late late contests matter more than early ones. I don't think that's necessarily a bad point. Um, certainly when we're talking about Indiana, when she's right on the cusp of winning, this throws fog on that, probably doesn't break her stride too much. And it, practically speaking, uh, we just want to point out that Clinton's share of the Indiana delegates was still pretty significant. How can late contests matter more? Th- this is democracy. How do you tell that to the people who voted in earlier states? Well, I mean, you tell the people who voted in earlier states that for a long time you've had the pick of the damn litter, and now you can sit back and let other states have a crack at deciding this thing. That's, that's yeah. what you should tell them. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, but, it's fair? It's fair because it wasn't fair? I think the, what Sanders will say is that there's been a lot of information now, more information than you've had before, had a lot of time to consider who's really the top dog in this race, and that, you know, as as Americans voters have accrued intelligence, intel about the race, they may be swinging more behind Sanders right now. I think it's interesting because one of the things that, in theory, you create when Donald Trump becomes the nominee is this idea that anyone on the Democratic side could maybe knock him off. Right. Yeah. And uh, I also find it really interesting, too, that Hillary Clinton said that she was cool with keeping Bernie in the race and she thought it was welcome. And then she drew on the fact that, you know, that was kind of the same situation that she was in back in 2008. So it's like, I don't know. I honestly was kind of personally surprised when she was like, yeah, Bernie should stay in. And it's like, okay, like, I guess everybody's cool with just letting this continue happening. I think you're totally right. And I think that she's getting good practice for the kind of arguments that Donald Trump is going to make. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Because he'll make liberal arguments because he has no principles. I think, well, that's one possibility. He did hire uh, a hedge funder who's more closely associated, associated with Democrats toward his finance campaign. But I think that Trump will will talk more about things like NAFTA uh, and about, you know, carrier and sending the middle class jobs overseas. And corruption. And, yeah, he's going to have a harder time on corruption because he's going to be in court with Trump University. But he's still... Oh, yes, he's very scrupulous. He wants to <laughs> avoid appearing hypocritical. Right. But but th- those, those will be the kind of things that will come up. And right now, I think Hillary benefits from having to respond to them. Our big question to consider... For the week ahead, can Trump actually win the White House? (laughs) If you're out there, listeners, and you have strong feelings about Donald Trump winning the White House and aren't just going to be like, oh, he's got a big dick and I love him, (laughs) um, uh, let us know. Because I personally think that perhaps a lot of Democrats who are gloating about Trump becoming the nominee are whistling past the graveyard. Anyway... Thanks, guys. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks, Christine. 
Uh, got a great show. Please stick around. We will be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined by my friend, Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And everyone's talking about Andrew Sullivan's story about Donald Trump in New York Magazine. The piece is really fun to read. It's titled, Democracies End When They Are Too Democratic. Right now, America is a breeding ground for tyranny. So we're joined now by the author of the piece, Andrew Sullivan. Hello. Hello. So, How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. Um, so in this story, you, you draw on philosophy and literature to argue that Trump's rise represents a potential extinction-level event for American democracy. Tell us, uh, when was it that you started thinking about this? Was it anything in particular that got you thinking on the, you know, the doom of our country? Well... <laughs> No more than most people, I think. Just for, I mean, I took the last year off. I was deliberately, I was hoping to avoid this election season altogether because I've covered every single one for the last 25 years. And, and you know, this, this, this figure started, you know, stomping around the landscape. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, I tried not to notice. Uh, I tried to look away. And roughly around Christmas, it just occurred to me that this really isn't going away, and there's something really kind of disturbing and dark about what is happening. And, uh, I mean, because a leading candidate for a party was proposing as his key platforms the forcible deportation, the removal of 11 million people from the United States, that he had endorsed the use of religion as a as a way in which you would discriminate against immigrants in the most crudest, broadest fashion. And that he had been consistently advocating and encouraging and condoning violence against his political opponents. Now, uh, you don't have to be a political theorist or a historian to put those three together and see something pretty dark. And then you kind of ask yourself, well, how on earth did this happen? How did this monster, this, this, this farcical, dangerous, dark monster, 
get this far. And that's, that's really where my mind went. And then I have to say there was a moment where I was, um, watching Fox News, as one does, and, uh, Hannity had a town hall with Trump. And I probably shouldn't have smoked a joint before I saw it. Oh, no. Yeah, that was a bad decision. <laughs> it was a really bad idea. And, but I, there was something about that town hall for an hour. I, I was transfixed. And it was something about the faces of the people who were looking at Trump and the, the look of sheer adoration and excitement and projection and what can only be called the, the look of people who had joined a cult that even if he said things that were transparently absurd, that, that I realized we have a problem here. We have a serious problem here. And, and I started thinking and writing and, and Plato was the first thing I thought about. And I, I just thought, I, I know this story somewhere. I think I've read it. <laughs> and I went back and, and then I just started reading, you know, and, 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 and watching and, and, and the dread slowly grew, um, until this piece came out. So I, I feel better having done it, but like you feel better after you've puked. That's great. <laughs> I, you're, I like how you're describing Donald Trump kind of like uh, Grendel stomping around the moors. Uh, yeah, it's, it's at some point it's going to come get us. But there's no Beowulf. We have a hashtag never Trump movement. Um, and in the wake of his victory in Indiana this week, some of those people, I guess, are like tweeting that they're leaving the Republican Party, but are you are you impressed by what they've got so far? Yes. Look, I, I have all sorts of issues. I, as you may know, I've been fighting with the Republicans now for a good 15 years. Um, well, no, I would say since 2003, really, um, 13 years. So I have no love lost between all those in the Republican Party who've ridden this tiger for so long and are now slowly being eaten by it, limb by limb. Uh, but I don't think that matters anymore. I think I'm on their side insofar as this issue is concerned. And because I think that the, the threat that this man poses to our civil order and to our constitution is, is so great that, 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 um, I, I wish them the best. I want them to, to keep upping the ante, to keep disowning, to keep pointing out just what a fascist we have right here, that this is a takeover of a political party by a mass movement stoked by the most foul um, demagoguery. So I agree with a lot of the premises in in your article, um, but I, I can't really stomach the conclusion you come to. Um, but, but here's what I like. You, you point out that Trump's white working class supporters really do have it pretty hard right now. And I think that's something that a lot of Democrats have not attended to um, because they're, you know, they're just not part of the Democratic voting coalition right now. But their jobs don't pay well, and they aren't satisfying. You point that out. You point out that nobody asked them if they wanted to have all these manufacturing jobs sent overseas. But to me, that sounds like what you're saying is that economic inequality is fueling Trump's support. So why target democracy and not economic inequality uh, if, if inequality is the, the root problem? No, inequality isn't driving it, um, it seems to me. What's driving it is, is globalization and the impact that it's having on on the kind of jobs that the white working classes have historically been able to have. 
that's not a question of their inequality as such. It's a question of the the grinding nature of a global economy in which they now have to compete in ways they never had to compete before, and also in which technology is transforming so many industries and forcing people into zones of insecurity and frustration that they haven't been in before. But globalization, what you're talking about there, I mean, that's something that does that does drive, or at least has driven inequality in the United States, right? Because it drives down wages for these people, and the people who benefit from it are, are people are you know essentially shareholders in corporations who who are the elites who live in cities who are part of the political process that you're that you're describing as, as sort of a check on democratic urges, right? Yeah. Yes, except, you know, when we talk about inequality, we're seeing a very weird and distorted kind of inequality right now. We're seeing a tiny, tiny number at the very top doing incredibly well. And and others, you know, also most other people are facing at some level or other the forces of this global economy. Um, the, the reason that inequality does matter is because Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have been able to leverage it to demonize those who apparently are in the elites and to say it's their fault. Not that they're the beneficiaries, but they've done this to hurt you. Um, and that's how inequality has factored into the equation. What I think has made Trump possible to get through all the usual barriers you might have to a complete raving lunatic becoming uh, the head of a political party is the democ- mass democratization of our culture, and including democratization of the media, which has allowed him to basically have his own propaganda channel on all the cable news and, and to dominate the media in a way that none, nobody in the elite media in any way has been able to resist or even challenge. So, Andrew Sullivan, you wrote that you don't buy that we've seen peak Trump, which is something people claimed all through the primary, that sure, he's doing well now, but he'll tank soon. But... The the uh, some people have pointed out you know the, the polls at the time were never wrong the polls showed that he was winning and it was just this sort of wishful thinking by analysts that was wrong and now the, and the polls today show that he's in bad shape in the general election against Hillary Clinton so why so gloomy about the fate of our democracy if the bad guy is going to lose. If he's going to lose. Uh, and I think part of what I'm trying to do in the piece is to say to people, you know, he can win. And, uh, and if you are, and if you have spent the last nine months assuming he can't, you're making the same mistake that the Republican Party establishment made last August and September. Do not underestimate this guy or the, the frustration that's there in the economy because of, and, and in the society because of what's happening economically. Do not underestimate his demagogic skills in reaching people who haven't been reached before, using some of the the most potent weapons in a demagogue's arsenal. Um, and he's going to bring out a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people that we haven't seen before in an election, uh, voting in an election. So I don't think you need, you, I, I do think he's bringing out lots of new voters. Now the question is, Obviously, and I'm hoping, you know, this is what I, I'd love you to reassure me about this. <laughs> I'm trying to get people <laughs> to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, but I think he has a couple of very strong arguments in this election. The first fundamental argument is one thing we know from both party contests so far. This is an outsider election. This is a change election. People are 
yearning for some big change. And, and the Democrats have picked a symbol of the establishment uh, who's been in Washington now for about 30 years, has actually lived in the White House already for eight years. Uh, they picked a candidate almost uniquely ill-suited to this time and this temper. Secondly, they picked a candidate who is useless as a candidate. She's incapable of inspiring. She's still struggling to put away in May uh, 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 somebody who wasn't even a member of her own party for the nomination. Uh, her negatives and her unfavorables are, are higher than any previous nominees at this point. And the only reason that you're looking at hope is because Trump has 10, has 10 points higher, but only 10 points, given <laughs> what he's said and done. I mean, it's, it's kind of staggering. People don't like Hillary Clinton. They don't trust her. And she has proven to be a terrible campaigner. And when he gets up there and says, do you want change or more of the same? What Bill Clinton said about George Bush in 1992, people are going to say, I want change. And when he says the system is corrupt, and I know, and she's corrupt because I bought her, <laughs> that's going to resonate. Um, and... Uh, so and do not under, no one's put absolute this kind of racism and this kind of xenophobia. No one's ever really put it without any hold barred on the top of a national ticket. So in the piece, uh, you suggested that because of the effectiveness of, of that kind of racism, at least on the Republican side, that Hillary Clinton ought to moderate her pension for identity politics. Well, I don't think she has a pension for it. She's just being forced into it by the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But uh, but with women, and, and Hillary Clinton is a woman, women hate Donald Trump a lot. Doesn't that still work and, in her and favor? And people of color and basically everybody who is not a white man who doesn't have I mean, Yeah, degrees, this is the right? coalition of people that will, that, that are the reason for Clinton's advantage that we see so far. Yes, and with any luck, demographics will hold. I just think... Uh, everybody's been wrong so far making these kinds of arguments about this race. And we don't know what the dynamic is going to be with a two-person race. And we don't know, you know, when you look at what, what he's done so far is turn this election into a reality television show. And he gets on the stage and he behaves in ways that no one has ever behaved in American politics. And I don't think, and, and we've seen established professional uh, solid politicians, governors, sitting governors, former governors, people who've been around for a while, been completely wiped out by this. Now, why do you think that someone as bad as Hillary Clinton is as a candidate is going to be able to tackle him in a way that no one else has been able to tackle him? I, I think there are good reasons for that concern, but but I don't see how anybody ends up ends up countering the forces you're describing without making economic po addressing economic policies that have created all of this all of this anger to me that seems very difficult but you talk about a contested convention a lot in in your piece that looks like at least so far as the delegate math is concerned yeah so what do you do as i said also in the piece <laughs> at this point you just it's up to the republicans to disown him in ways that is public open <laughs> excuse me, and clear, um, and to keep doing so. Um, it's also important for the rest of us to absolutely refuse to go along with the, the games that he's playing, to, to play and to get into the media stories about 
Ted Cruz's father's being involved in the John Kennedy assassination. This is what he does to throw everybody off balance all the time. Yeah. So they can't focus on what we're supposed to focus on. And at some point, the media and the Democrats are going to have to say enough. You know, this is, this is not a reality show. This is, this is politics and, 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 and fight back on those terms substantially. But that is a much harder challenge in this culture, in a reality TV culture, in a, in a web-driven culture, in a democratized culture than it ever was before. Because who comes in and says, stop this? This is, this is not grown up. This is not mature. This is not the way we do things. Who? Who is there anymore can say that? No one in the Republican Party could actually enforce some order or discipline. Certainly no one in the broader politics can. And my fear is just that, I hate to say this, I don't think Hillary's up to it. Hmm. I really don't. Looks like it's going to be up to Paul Ryan. I, I think the Republicans are the, you know, the best hope against him because I think, I think that he's, he's gonna, he's gonna, and the other thing people talk about the gender gap. Do people realize how big the gender gap is for Trump among men? I mean, it is quite extraordinary. If you look last night, this is gender gap among men. Uh, it is, it could easily dwarf Hillary's, uh, gender gap among women. Uh, all right, Andrew Sullivan, we are going to have to leave it there. I hope not. Let me just say, I really hope not. I'm not. Please don't get me wrong. I don't want this to happen. <laughs> I, I, no, it seems like you're pretty upset about it. It doesn't seem like you're rooting for this at all. No, okay, good, good. As long as that's clear. I, and look, you know, probably you know how I feel about Hillary Clinton in for decades. I cover, had to cover her when I was editor of the New Republic in the 90s. I, I, it takes a lot for me to say I will, I will crawl over hot coals to vote, campaign, do whatever I can for her. That's That's... I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think that's the only patriotic thing to do. I think anybody who's ever been a Republican, ever been an independent, ever had any any leaning towards conservatism as it properly should be understood needs to vote Hillary. Uh, that's what we've got to do. That's the only thing that matters at this point. All right. Everything else is bullshit. The hashtag never Trump. Andrew Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. We're back. So Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell and his wife, you may remember them. They were found guilty of public corruption charges in September of 2014, stemming from the governor's involvement with Johnny Williams, the former CEO of Star Scientific, a dietary supplement company. McDonnell and Williams basically engaged in the straight-up exchange of cash for access and influence. The McDonald's, using Williams' largesse, took home a $6,500 Rolex watch, a $15,000 shopping jaunt at Bergdorf Goodman, a $10,000 engagement gift for one of their daughters, and a $15,000 to pay for a catering bill at another daughter's wedding, plus six figures worth of corporate jet use. In return, Williams got the McDonald's to become dedicated shills for Star Scientific. They hosted events for the company at the governor's mansion. They ensured that Williams would have access to influential policymakers. And they pressured state health officials to meet with Williams, all in the support of earning Star Scientific's products, an easier and cheaper path to passing clinical trials. 
McDonald had the juice to make that happen, and Williams decided it was cheaper to buy them off than take a more expensive route to bringing his products to market. In short, Johnny had the quid, McDonald was the pro, and lo, there was quo. Now, McDonald is appealing his conviction before the Supreme Court, and I have bad news for everyone. The Supreme Court is signaling that they are very amenable to the governor's point of view. Joining us to talk about this case right now is my colleague, Zachary Carter. Hello, everyone. And joining us by phone, we have Zephyr Teachout, candidate for Congress in New York's 19th District and author of Corruption in America, From Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Zephyr, thanks for joining us today. Hi. It's great to be back on. It's great to have you. So... Uh, just to take maybe a few steps back, in your book, you talk about the way political corruption has in recent years come to be sort of radically defined downwards by multiple Supreme Court rulings from a more robust view of what constitutes political corruption to really almost no view at all. Can you explain how this came to pass? Uh, you know, basically starting in the 70s, after 200 years of a fair amount of consistency where courts understood that corruption was a central threat to democracy, perhaps the central threat to democracy, um, starting in the 70s through the 80s and 90s, the Supreme Court started questioning what corruption was and whether it, something counted as corruption unless there was an explicit exchange, especially in the campaign finance context. So you see these series of cases saying, well, if there's a big donor who, uh, or, or, you know, in Post Citizens United, a, a big corporation who spends a lot of money in the campaign and gets what they want, if there isn't an explicit deal, we're not going to call that corruption. Uh, most of that has happened in the campaign finance realm. What is really dangerous about this uh, McDonald case um, is that the court looks poised to do something similar in the bribery realm, in the criminal bribery realm. And, and narrow the definition there. And what, what that means is if you narrow the definition of corruption in campaign finance and say, yeah, corporations can spend unlimited money and that's not corruption, and then limit it in bribery and say, only in the most sort of buffoon-like instances are we going to call it corruption, there basically are no more anti-corruption laws. That, that's, the, that's the future that we're moving towards. So, I mean, Zephyr, I guess one, one of the, I think, chief criticisms for Citizens United, which, you know, obviously the landmark Supreme Court case that uh, called corporations people and granted them First Amendment rights to money as speech. Uh, the, the idea there is that it, it, you, you can't really pinpoint corruption unless there, there's the explicit exchange of, you know, of cash for favors. And here we have with the McDonald case, you know, Rolex watches, we have camel hair jackets, we have catering fees in exchange for clear favors. What is how how could the Supreme Court be confused about about the quid pro quo here? What what is the what what are they talking about? Well, well, there's a few moving parts here, and I really want to separate them out. Um, in the campaign finance realm, the court has said you need an explicit exchange, and there's a reason for that. They say, look, um, a donor to a campaign, which isn't the Citizens United situation, but a donor to a campaign can't get caught up in criminal bribery laws unless there's an explicit deal. But in the general bribery realm, we've never actually required that juries find the uh, the smoking letter or the smoking gun. Uh, <laughs> right. They can say uh, they can say, "Hey, um, here's somebody uh, looking at all the circumstances. We conclude that there was an intent to exchange a million dollars in cash for a vote, um, and uh, and we can convict." 
what if the jury decides that there's beyond a reasonable doubt evidence showing that there was that intent for the exchange to be present? Does that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Maybe a better way to put it is there was a carve out for that general bribery rule in the campaign finance arena because of concerns that uh, that uh, hundreds and hundreds of donors might get taken to court. Um, because those donors also have business before public officials. This McDonald case is not a campaign finance case. Correct, yeah. Uh, Johnny Williams was not giving a donation to a campaign. He was giving Rolex to put on McDonald's arm. He was giving a shopping (laughs) spree for McDonald's family. This wasn't in this a very uh, sort of murkier area of campaign finance law. This is old-school classic corruption. What's amazing about this is that is that Noel Francisco McDonald's lawyer is is was arguing that uh bribery of this kind has to result in an official act of government to make it uh illegal and that in this case in his words all McDonald did was quote make a referral. Now of course that referral would have been to medical professionals who could have put these products on a glide path to cheaper and easier clinical trials, which would be, to my mind, an official act of government. You're exactly right. And so I just want to sort of follow this sequence down. So the the attack in the Citizens United realm was on explicitness in the campaign finance context. The attack here is on what constitutes an official act. And basically, the uh, McDonald lawyers and those and, and the justices seemed ready to go this way. We're saying um, not it's not bribery if it's not explicit, but it's not bribery unless you're signing your pen to a document. Right. Um, uh, and actually putting funds in somebody's hand as opposed to a referral, an event to the governor's mansion uh, set of meetings. And this is overturning, I mean, uh, 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 700 years of law, basically. <laughs> It almost seems like um, the, the argument here that the justices appear sympathetic to, and, and it's most of the justices. We're not just talking about Anthony Kennedy here, but most of the justices. All but Sotomayor and, and, and Ginsburg seem uh, amenable. Um, it, but it, it almost seems like the argument is, you know, if if you bribe somebody, but um, but you're bad at bribing them and, and they fail to follow through on the quid pro quo request, that, that it doesn't count as bribery. <laughs> Uh, it, it just it just seems like a, a very strange uh, definition of, of corruption. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the, I thought the justices were kind of confused during the oral argument. They got confused about the difference between the explicitness question and official acts question. And overall, and I'd say uh, Justice Breyer was leading the charge. They were on the hunt for something that would provide what they called a clear limiting principle. Um, and uh, they, they saw the official act as a potential limiting principle. And I think that the most powerful moment in this case uh, came from an uh, amicus brief of former Bush and Obama officials who said, basically, you've got to overturn this conviction because this is the way things are done in Washington. And yeah, unfortunately, I think that's exactly the problem. The, the, courts, the courts seemed more concerned that it was going to give prosecutors a heavier caseload than anything else. Just to just to take people through one of the more particularly enraging parts of this case. And this is stuff that was all reported by NPR's Legal Eagle, uh, Nina Totenberg. During um, during the the hearing, the uh, prosec- the, the justices, sorry, seemed to be much more aggressive in their questioning of 
uh, Michael Dreben, the deputy solicitor general who was assigned to this case. Uh, Roberts suggested that the anti-corruption laws we have on the books right now are too broad and so broad to be unconstitutional. And Dreben responded with apoplexy, saying, quote, it would be absolutely stunning if this court said that bribery and corruption laws, which have been on the books since the beginning of this nation, have been consistently enacted in, by Congress. And there he was cut off by Anthony Kennedy, who said, absolutely stunning to say the government has given us no workable standard, to which Dreben responded, we've given you a workable standard based on this court's decisions dating back to 1914. And I was listening to this, Zephyr, and I couldn't help but think that your book describes a century of case law that used to protect us from this. Yeah. No, I I also found it um, fairly enraging, honestly. And, and there was a lot of humor at the hearing that I thought was inappropriate, um, just this kind of lightness, like, you come on, you can't have a statute um, that, uh, you know, somebody brought up trout fishing, that what if I go trout fishing and the next day um, uh, help a constituent out? You're going to convict me under, uh, on that basis? Instead of really trying to understand that there is a serious limiting principle that has always been there, which is the principle of jury having to find that there was an intent to have it be an exchange. Doesn't the mere... and, and actually one of the things I one of the things I took away from it is this deep distrust of juries. That 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 that, that juries can't tell the difference between um, a a public official who is taking something uh, in order to show favoritism, which they shouldn't be doing, or is taking something as part of their of their normal duties and then separately um, acting in the public good. It just also presumes there's a whole bunch of rogue prosecutors out there leading scurrilous uh, corruption cases all the time against public officials, and that's just not true. Really, really hard to win a public corruption case. It is one of the hardest things to do. I have extraordinary admiration for the prosecutors who take them on. I feel like these justices have a fantasy vision of some uh, <laughs> really easy, simple... Uh, Everybody gets it. Bribery law that right. um, <laughs> that will solve all our problems, and they keep mentioning it. And Citizens United, they say, no, 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 we 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 can't ban corporations from spending money because we'll use those really easy, simple bribery laws. Yep. In this case, they say, oh, no, 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 we can't use this because we'll use those really easy, simple bribery laws. Well, the truth is, corruption chart, uh, corruption uh, cases have always been hard, yeah, um, and always required on jury finding intent. Believe it or not, America, it used to be that the thought of uh, the penumbra of corruption would be undermining to democracy, but we all live in this postmodern wilderness of nonsense, so look for perhaps the Supreme Court to deal a death blow to these kind of prosecutions. Um, uh, Zephyr, thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to having you back on. Great. Thanks, thanks for talking. Sure thing. All right. We will be right back. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I am joined now by a special guest, Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat of Michigan who represents the area around the city of Flint. Congressman, thank you so much for joining. Thanks. It's good to be on. So it was a huge week for Flint. President Obama traveled there for the first time since the Flint water crisis came to attention uh, six months ago. And Congressman, you flew with the president on Air Force One. Tell us a little about that. 
Well, it was great. You know, obviously to be able to spend some time with the president um, and some of his key staff on the plane to talk about the Flint issue in greater depth uh, was a really good opportunity to explain to them uh, my perspective on what's happening and sort of prepare them for the for the visit. Uh, and then, you know, sort of as a son of Flint, I grew up here, a child of Flint. This is where my family lives. This is where I live. To land at my own hometown airport on Air Force One was uh, a moment that just from a personal standpoint, it's kind of hard to forget. It's, it was pretty amazing. And the governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, greeted the president on the tarmac after having previously said, oh, I don't know if I have time in my schedule for the president. But did the two get along? Well, they, I mean, they were able to converse. I, I wouldn't say that they have a friend, friendly relationship, but it was cordial at the very least. Uh, the president did uh, have a conversation with the mayor of the city of Flint and the governor on the way over uh, to the emergency operations briefing that we had. So, you know, I think it was a businesslike visit in that sense. The presence of the governor was, you know, somewhat unexpected, but the fact that he was there gave opportunity for some discussions that haven't really taken place yet. And so it's uh, it was helpful in that regard. So it's been two years, more than two years, actually, since the the city started pumping water from the Flint River and didn't treat it correctly. The water has been contaminated with lead this whole time. Does the, does the presidential visit signify any kind of turning point for the Flint water crisis? Well, I'm not sure if it's a turning point as much as, it is, as it's a, a bit of relief that the president is not going to let the story fade. Many of us who have been involved in trying to fight for Flint, uh, even long before it became a national story, have had a concern that Flint would sort of get its 15 minutes of fame, there'd be a lot of attention around this lead crisis, and then some other event would overtake things and Flint would become sort of an asterisk in history. So the president's visit actually comes at a really crucial time because it, it was beginning, to the, for, at least for the people from Flint, I can speak for myself in this regard, it was beginning to feel like the urgency was fading. His visit, if it's a turning point at, at all, it's, it's a turning point in the sense that it keeps us focused, that we can't let this crisis pass without solving it for the people of Flint and learning some really important lessons for the rest of the people of the country. So the EPA and various uh, independent experts say that filters certified to remove lead are effective, and uh, the president made a public display of drinking a glass of filtered Flint water. Do you think that that will help people in Flint who have been suspicious about the water? Uh, will that help them feel more optimistic well, I think that what helps is is listening to the science. You know, the president made it very clear uh, when he arrived that he didn't plan on you know doing any stunts. Uh, there wasn't a, a moment when uh, when there was a glass of water in front of him. This was during the press uh, briefing at the emergency operations center, uh, where a member of the news media asked if it was Flint water in front of him. Uh, unlike the governor, who has sort of done these planned stunts, that was, I think, rather uh, spontaneous on the part of the president. What wasn't spontaneous is his recitation of what the science is telling us, that if you are over the age of six and not a, a pregnant woman, filtered water using a rated filter reduces the lead content to a point where it's either gone or trace levels below the, the EPA requirement.
required levels. You know, we want this city to function. We want people to be able to live their lives, but we want them to be armed with good information that they can use to protect themselves. And I think that was the point that the president was trying to make. Congressman Dan Kildee, you're in Flint. It's your hometown. What is your water strategy? Do you have filters or are you drinking bottled? Well, we um, I live in a part of the community where I have county water, but at the office we use a filter because that's really basically I spend all my time there. We use filters. Uh, we have bottled water for for guests who come in because we, we, we want to be accommodating to that. Most folks here do the same thing. They have a filter as we do. They have bottled water in reserve. And, you know, I would say that despite what is being recommended, people tend to err on the side of caution. And until this is really solved, I think that's going to continue to be the way most people operate. So you talked about the need to not let the Flint water crisis fade from the headlines. But one lesson has got to be that in the sense that it has lead pipes, Flint is not unique. Do you think that nationally the country is learning a lesson about lead pipes, or are people imagining that this is something that could only happen to a city like Flint that's poor and uh, majority African-American? Well, my hope is that they'll learn two important lessons. One is the obvious one, is that, as you pointed out, there are lead uh, pipes all over the country, and we have a big job ahead of us to rebuild our infrastructure, and that includes roads and bridges and ports and rail systems, but it also includes these water systems. The other lesson, which is probably the more relevant lesson to the Flint story, is that this obsession with government austerity has consequences, whether it's austerity in the effort to enforce vigorously the environmental protections that are in law, or the kind of austerity in Flint that caused the state to take it over and to have such a skeleton operation at the water plant that they really had no capacity to manage the system, even if they uh, had intended to manage it properly. You know, that that obsession with government being as small as we can possibly make it has consequences. And yeah. Flint, Michigan is a consequence. So the, the lead uh, has no flavor or smell, or, uh, and uh, but that wasn't the only problem with Flint's water. It was also like it's been filled with rust. It's been brown, and it's had chemical odor and taste. Do you think that if it hadn't had these other problems, the lead problem would have been brought to light? You know, I think that's a very good point. Very likely um, it would not have because the people at the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, the state agency that is supposed to test the water, no matter what it looks like or no matter how it smells, they're supposed to test it regularly for lead, they weren't doing their job. So in a normal situation, it wouldn't be left to citizens who are reacting to taste and smell and other concerns with the water to raise this question. But that's what happened. And and that, to me, speaks to the underlying problem, as I pointed out. It's not just about the infrastructure, but it's about the fact that there were people charged with protecting public health who simply did not do their job. And when they were caught... Rather than saying, yes, we have a big problem, we've got to fix it, 
they basically lied to the people of Flint and said the water was okay. That's the story of this tragedy. And unfortunately, in retrospect, we all know that it was entirely preventable if people who were charged with protecting public health took that responsibility as seriously as we know they should. Very disconcerting. All right, Congressman Dan Kildee, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by New York Magazine's Andrew Sullivan, author and U.S. House candidate Zephyr Teachout, and Michigan Representative Dan Kildee, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Christine Canetta. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts while you're in the iTunes store. And as you're hanging around, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. And thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.